This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This is the fall line. This week, we continue the story of Leona LeClaire Kenzie and Carolyn DeFord, a missing mother and a daughter who has grown up to become an advocate for the missing and murdered, both online, through her Facebook group, and through her legislative work for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. When we left off last time, Carolyn's story had carried us through her childhood and into the complex relationship she and Leona had in her adolescence. They were incredibly close and there was so much she admired about her mother. Her talent, her independence, her strength, her eye for artistic design, and her humor. But her mother's struggles with addiction had been a strain, too, and Carolyn sometimes fended for herself when Leona was in jail. She blamed her mother for the breakup of Leona's marriage to the stepfather that Carolyn had adored. By Carolyn's late teenage years, Leona was out of jail and back living in the little trailer park they'd been in for most of their life surrounded by friends and family that Carolyn had grown up with. But Carolyn had begun to strike out on her own, first living with roommates, then back with her mother, then back with friends. She was in the process of figuring things out. In six years, her mother would vanish, and Carolyn herself would be a mother. But in the early 1990s, she felt adrift. When I was about 19, I started dating a guy who lived just up the street a little ways. And I had come, I'd gotten in a fight with my mom and gotten in an argument with my, you know, with my roommates. And I, I moved up here where I am now to Washington. And I was staying with my biological dad and my stepmom for a couple of, of weeks. And I got pregnant. So me and my son's dad went to Spokane where his family lived and we kind of just couch hopped with all his friends for a while and we were homeless and lived in the park for a while um, in our car. I worked, I went to work at Skipper's restaurant and I worked there um, and I worked every day and that was kind of my way to escape. I think, you know, is to just work as much as I could. And this was during your pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I'm 19 years old and I'm pregnant 
and homeless in Spokane. I remember there was a couple of food banks that would give me um, extra beef jerky and extra peanuts and extra protein and um, lots of cup of noodles because I didn't have to, I could eat those with hot water. I remember taking my cup of noodles into a McDonald's that was across the street from the park and asking for hot water. And they said, it's 25 cents. And I was like, I just want some hot water. And they're like, yeah, it's 25 cents. And I didn't have 25 cents. And I started crying and I went to the bathroom and I ran the hot water and put it in my cup of noodles and it wasn't hot enough to make them soft and they were gross. And I just remember thinking then like, I hate this. I hate this. And we lived like that until about October. I turned 20, still pregnant. And we found a little trailer and it it had the washer and dryer were in the living room. It was weird. Um, It had holes in the floor, um, holes in the walls. It was an old little single wide aluminum trailer in Airway Heights outside of Spokane. And and it was gross. And it had cockroaches and, and mice and it was just icky, you know, and, but it had four walls and it was, it was my space. You know, it was, I had water and I had a stove and I, I didn't have anything. So I appreciated it. And my son was born in November. At that point, my son's dad was, I didn't recognize it, you know, but he was in active addiction and, and going downhill fast. And my mom knew it because, you know, because she knew she got me out of there. She came up and stayed with me with me when my son was born and she was pointing out all these things, you know, about how you know, about what was going on and one night me and my son's dad got in an argument and the next day my mom and I packed up what I could what I could take and it was about three banana boxes and, you know, my portable crib and my dog <laughs> and that was it. I left. I stayed with my mom for a little while and she was so creative and can make the best of, of nothing, you know, and we would go to the thrift stores and Salvation Army and, and garage sales. And she always had vision for things like repurposing things and making, making things and just had an eye for that kind of stuff. And so it was fun you know, to do those, to to do that and see what kind of great deals we could get without much money. And those were good times too. She was still sober and my son's dad went to treatment and when he got out, we got back together and we moved back to my hometown in La Grande and um, I stayed with that friend for a while. My friend who was kind of always there. I stayed with her for a little while before he got out of treatment what was your mom like as a grandmother? When I was in labor with my son, my first son, my mom drove all night. Like I went into labor around 10 o'clock at night and she was there by morning. She was really protective. She was, she loved them. You know, she, my son was, he went to stay the night with her once. She was still doing okay. She was living in her trailer, but he went to stay the night with her and he was like, maybe one. And when I went to pick him up the next morning, he had 
her knee high socks like pulled up to his thighs and on his arms because he was crawling around on the floor and she didn't want his knees to get sore. She didn't want his knees to get dirty. So she pulled her, put her socks on him and pulled them all the way up. And he seemed just fine with it, you know, <laughs> but I thought it was, I thought it was silly. She always wanted, you know, wanted to be there for, for them and was always buying them little, you know, little things or picking things up for them. And, and even after I moved away and I moved back up here to Washington, she stayed in the Grand and I would get a care package from her every month and it would have, my mom had a silly, silly sense of humor. Um, you know, the little candy dispensers, like the pooping reindeers and the pooping chickens. Your memory is just incredible. Your ability to like recall events and things and, and so descriptive. It's just wonderful. I've taken a lot of inventory. Like when she, when I, when she first disappeared, I, I probably spent two weeks just staring, just doing nothing, just thinking and trying to remember everything from the very beginning to the very end. I didn't want any memory to leave. I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to lose anything of who she was. Leona and Carolyn lived apart for the next few years, but stayed in regular contact, with Leona's focus on her new role as grandmother a special point of pride. Carolyn hoped for her mother's health and sobriety, but things weren't always so simple. She remembered a visit Leona made to see her in 1996 or 1997 that was a turning point. She came to stay with me in Washington, and she came with her boyfriend at the time, who was a loser. And she was, she was not herself. She, I'd never seen her that bad ever. She didn't make any sense. You know, she was, she was high. She was, it, she was in bad shape and, and she was always tiny. You know, she was always a hundred pounds and just this tiny little thing. And, and she was just a stranger. Like, I didn't even recognize her. At one point, she was sleeping on the couch. And I don't know how long it had been since she slept, but she was talking to herself and thrashing around. And and I just watched her and cried. And um, she stayed with me for about a week. Like, her boyfriend left her there. And she stayed for about a week before she figured out how to get home or something. And I wrote her a letter. I wrote her a letter that said how much I loved her and how much we needed her and how I wanted her to be this strong Indian grandma, you know, that could teach, could teach her grandkids things, you know, I wanted her to be, I wanted her healthy, you know, and, and I told her that if she was going to continue to prioritize drugs, then I couldn't have her in my life. And I wouldn't allow her to be in the kids' life. I said, this is really hard for me to say because I know that you're reading this and you're telling me, who do you think you are? You know, don't talk to me like that. And, you know, I, I know you're mad and I know it hurts and I have to say it. I have to tell you to stop because if I don't, I'll never forgive myself if something happens and your blood is on my hands. I don't know what I thought, but 
I had hoped that that would scare her clean, you know, that not being able to see us would, would make her want to get clean. And it kind of did, you know, we didn't talk for, we didn't talk for about six months. Were you not talking because she was angry at that time? I think both. We weren't talking because she was, she was mad. How dare I talk to her? Who do I think I am? Tell her how to live her life, you know, and she was mad because I said that. And I was mad because I told her I was done, that she couldn't be in my life anymore if that's what she was going to do. And so I had already said I was done and I wasn't going to talk to her. And we kind of were just not talking. I don't remember how we started talking again or, or what happened. I might have went home for something. I might have went back to LeGrand because I would try to go back at least once a year, twice a year to, you know, visit and see my friends and see my dad. And, and um, I don't remember how we started talking again, but we did. By 1998, mother and daughter were spending time with each other again. Leona felt like the old Leona and was able to visit to help Carolyn as the birth of her third child, her daughter, approached. I thought she was clean. If she wasn't, she was hiding it really well. She was eating and sleeping and joking, and we were doing all the things that we did when things were good, you know, Um, and we were good. She stayed with me for uh, like a month or two in 1998 just to visit, to help me around the house and stuff, and we would go down to the river, and my mom was always a rock hound the whole time I was a kid. And um, we always had, she, we always had buckets of rocks everywhere. And we'd go down the river and, and pick up rocks. And when I was little, we'd find heart-shaped rocks and she'd hand it to me and like, here, it's a heart-shaped rock for you, you know? And and so it kind of became our thing that I would find heart-shaped rock and I would give it to her and she'd find one and give it to me. And I remember asking her, how do you always find the pretty ones? Like I only had like, 10 rocks in my bucket and hers was full and they were all pretty. She said, I just pick them up if they catch my eye. And I was like looking for specific pretty ones, you know, we'd come home and bring our rocks back and dump them out and scrub them with a toothbrush. My mom would put them in a jar with water or something and be like, aren't they pretty now? See, aren't they pretty? It was about fall and she picked a big giant maple leaf and put it between some records and told me, don't get rid of it. Don't get rid of this. Don't do anything with it. We'll do something with it later and it'll be cool. Just watch. And when I was younger, she pressed flowers. So I think she had something in mind for that leaf. When Carolyn's daughter was born in August of 1998, Leona was there. She stayed at the house, cleaned, cooked for the kids, and stayed several weeks to help everyone settle in. Carolyn now had three children under four, and Leona was able to help entertain them as Carolyn recovered from childbirth. As Carolyn told us, it was good. She was good. It was a good time. But on the next visit, things were different. The next time I would see her, I don't remember why I knew she was using, but I knew she was using she brought this creepy boyfriend here and I didn't like him and I knew he was high. And I, I just, I was just really upset that she was in that place again. And so she would send care packages and we would talk on the phone, but 
neither of us had much money and neither of us had reliable cars and I didn't really get to go home, you know, back to the grand a whole lot, maybe once a year. And I worked, I worked about 70 hours a week just to pay the bills because I mean, I didn't make much money and without overtime, I couldn't, I couldn't make ends meet. And I didn't see her a lot. We didn't see each other a lot through that, but she called and, you know, she would check on me over the phone and um, she'd asked me to look into um, a treatment center up here. You know, are there any treatment centers up here? She wanted to get out of La Grande and she, she was going to come up here. I was kind of excited about that, you know, about having her close and having her healthy. And that, like that whole year is kind of just, just that, you know, we just kept in touch via letter. She'd send letters and packages. She'd always put $5 in it or $10 and say, I know it's not much, but get yourself a soda or, you know, I know it's not much, but here, you know, here you go. So I didn't see her a whole lot before that either, you know, just because of money. But we, we talked on the phone regularly. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't home, I worked so much she would leave message you know she'd leave a message you know we're still touching base regularly carolyn would not have the chance to see leona again her mother disappeared in october of 1999 and her absence was first noticed by a longtime friend one who managed to track carolyn down in washington they worked together to try and piece together leona's movements on the day of her disappearance october 25th because carolyn was living a state away We've gathered some elements of Leona's disappearance from local news reporting and some from Carolyn's own memories. On the day she got the news, Carolyn felt somehow wrong all day. She told us that she hadn't had any word yet of her mother's disappearance, but that she was in an absolute state of distress over what she couldn't quite name. I woke up that morning and I I got dressed and I cried about everything like I couldn't it was like I was having a a panic attack, but I couldn't stop crying. And I cried about literally everything. And my kids had stayed the night with my dad the night before, and I had to go pick them up. And I cried, and it was raining, and I cried, and I got dressed, and I cried. And I got to kids, you know, to my dad's to pick up my kids, and I'd been crying. And my son, Kyger... He might have been four. So he gave me this giant maple leaf and he said, here, mama, here. And he held it up and he said, it's big as my face. And he laughed and I laughed because, you know, my mom would have done that. And it instantly made me think of my mom's maple leaf. I loaded them up in the car and I started crying and I dropped them off at home with my daughter's dad, who, you know, he was staying home with them that night. And I changed for work and when I got into work I was crying and now it's like six o'clock in the evening and I walked in and my coworkers said we got your shift covered go ahead and go and I was just like I'm just having a bad day like I was still I was still crying you know and um to like that's okay just you know, go go home. We got it covered. You don't have to be here. Go take care of everything. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm just having a bad day. And they said, well, did you 
did you get the message? And I said, what message? And they said, well, your mom's friend, you know, somebody named Nancy called. She said, she's your mom's friend. She was looking for you. And I said, oh, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't talk to her, you know. And they said, well, she said your mom's missing, so we got your shift covered. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think anything of it. We, were, we didn't have money for reliable vehicles. I don't know, they all had tricks to getting them started or, you know, driving or changing gears or anything. I just thought she got a flat tire somewhere or her battery died or whatever, you know. And without cell phones, you know, that you kind of just had to wait. I called my mom's friend just to hear what she had to say. And and she had been my mom's friend since like third grade. So they were kind of partners in crime through the good and the bad for a long time. And she said she was worried that my mom was supposed to go meet at the store and she was supposed to come over afterwards and she didn't show up and she's really worried. She wanted to know if she was here. I told her I would try and get a hold of her and I'd let her know. And I really thought that I would call my mom and she'd call me right back. And I kind of was just humoring, humoring her and calling my mom and leaving messages. And by morning I was mad, you know, like it wasn't like my mom did not call me back. And I'm worrying and I'm, and I'm getting mad because I'm having to worry. And I told her that I had an emergency and I needed her to call me and she didn't call me. Nancy said, you know, I've, I've called the police, but you know, can you call the police and file a missing persons report? And I still thought, you know, I was raised where you didn't get the police involved in things. You know, my mom didn't always have an up-and-up lifestyle, but every time the police came, it was bad. You know, every time the police came, there was something bad was happening that they had to, you know, that they had to come. And I kind of just, I didn't want to call them. And I, I knew my mom would be mad. And so I waited until later in the afternoon and finally decided I, I better call. And I I just, I, I looked up the LeGrand Police Department phone number and I called and they said, can I help you? And I said, I need to file a missing persons report. And they said, okay, you know, and I don't remember a whole lot of it. I remember saying my mom's a missing person and crying because that was the first time I'd labeled her. She's not a missing person. She's, she's my mom. And I was just, that was really hard to say. And they were asking me to describe her and I didn't know, you know, I, I think she's a hundred pounds, 110 pounds. She's, she's five, four. She's, She's got a tattoo on her arm. She has brown hair and brown eyes. Like, you know who she is, you know. <laughs> and they said, okay, you know, um, we'll give this information to the detective. Give us a call if you hear anything. And that was it, you know. And part of me thought that once I made that police report, once I did that, that my mom would come home. And because that's kind of Murphy's law, right? Like, 
once you do what you're supposed to do, you don't need to do it anymore. That my mom was going to come home and I had gotten the police involved and I was going to be in trouble was my, was my fear. Not that my mom wouldn't come home. I was afraid. Now I'm afraid that she will. (laughs) She's going to be mad. And I remember thinking, well, Tess, she can be mad. She shouldn't make me worry like that. Maybe the next day or the day after my mom's friend called and they, she had been driving all over town looking for my mom and I was still having to go to work every day. It was in between paydays and I didn't have the money to go to LeGrand until payday. And I kind of had to, I had to try and keep going as best I could. I remember standing at work and, you know, it's a restaurant. I'm standing at work cooking and just crying, you know, tears running down my face and there's nobody else that can come cook. Having to help people, you know, on the cash register and they would have, you know, somebody would have brown hair and maybe be as tall as my mom and I would just start crying and I didn't belong in that space. You know, I should have been, I should have been home taking care of myself, but a couple of days later, my mom's friend called and said, you know, your mom's car is in the Albertsons parking lot. She said, I'm going to sit here and wait for her, you know, for her to come out. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you. You know, oh, my God, you know, like what a relief. But it soon became apparent that things were not OK. Leona never exited that grocery store and her car. It looked wrong. It was covered in mud. Later, police would discover the four-wheel drive had been broken too, as if it had been driven over extremely harsh terrain. The trunk was still full of Leona's cleaning supplies and belongings, but none of her personal effects, not her purse, her cigarettes, none of that was in the car. Leona's friend waited for hours in the parking lot, and then she called Carolyn. The police needed to know about the development. But when Carolyn called law enforcement to ask that they impound her mother's car and collect evidence, they said they couldn't come out right away. They were in the middle of another case. A woman had just reported an assault, and the detective said it would be a while. Carolyn insisted that the car had to be impounded, and quickly. She was afraid that time loss could be evidence lost. Some news reports have said that Leona disappeared on her way to the grocery store, though there's no hard evidence backing that up. Her car may have been left there by her or abandoned there by whoever participated in her disappearance. And according to the LeGrand Observer, the manager of the Albertsons didn't believe Leona's car had been there overnight. Leona was last seen on October 25th, a Monday. The car was found on October 29th, a Friday. Would you say that discovery of her car was a turning point for you and how you thought of the situation? It was the beginning of one. Yeah. Like it was panic. I don't know. Like I still wanted to believe something else. My mom was such a a fighter and so independent and, you know, so unstoppable. And I couldn't believe, you know, that, that she couldn't kick anybody's ass that tried to hurt her. They would have had to kill her. When Carolyn was able to make it back into town, she headed straight to her mother's place. It hadn't been searched by law enforcement 
and as far as she knew, would be as close to as her mother had left it. Leona's home was stocked with food, and Leona's pets, the pets she'd loved dearly, had been left alone for days. Nothing signaled that she had decided to leave for a day, much less for a week, or for good. When Carolyn walked into Leona's place, the fear that something had happened to her mother solidified. I walked into my mom's house, and it just felt like she had just stepped out. It felt like like she'd be right back. Nothing looked odd, you know? Nothing seemed out of place or different or anything. And there's a, a bunch of bananas. There's coffee in the coffee pot. She kept her cigarettes in the freezer, and there was a full carton of cigarettes in the freezer. You know, if she was leaving, she wouldn't have bought food to leave behind. She would have taken it. Um, she wouldn't, we didn't have the money to do that, you know, to buy food to leave behind or cigarettes. And then I started walking around her house and I felt like I was invading her space. And I went to her bedroom and I looked at the things on her walls and I laid down on her bed and buried my face in her pillow and smelled her. And I just begged her to come home, come home, just. I know you're mad at me, but come home. I, when I rolled over, I was looking at a bookshelf next to her bed and all the trinkets and things she had, you know, she had on it. And I looked down and her purse was in the corner between her bed and the bookshelf. And it had her pager and her keys and her glasses and my mom just was not the kind of woman that left home without her purse. It had her ibuprofen in it and, you know, pocket knife. And it, she just wouldn't leave home without her purse. And I knew, I think that's, that's when I, I knew we weren't going to find her. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any more hope. And I knew that that day that I cried I knew she was with me. I knew she had said goodbye. I just knew. After finding that purse, I've never humored the idea that I was, that my mom would come home. I just knew I would never find her, you know, and we had to pack up all of her things that weekend and, you know, things that had taken her a lifetime to accumulate, you know, and people are over saying, can I have something of your mom's? Can I have something to remember her by? And these are all sacred things to me now. Like, no, no, you can't have anything, you know, and I, I want it all. And I even brought home duffel bags full of rocks because um, she handpicked every one of them. We packed it all up as, as best we could. And the police never came and questioned what the heck we were doing. They never went through her house before we got there for fingerprints or, you know, that light that shows blood or anything, you know, nothing. When was the next time you spoke to them? It might have been maybe two or three weeks later. And I was, I was asleep on the couch. And I woke up from a dream where I was walking along a pond. And there were kind of some trails through the bushes that would get down close to the pond. But there was a road around the pond and 
you could see the pond, but there was a lot of bushes to get to it. And so you kind of had to go through one of the trails that had already been made. And I went down one of these little trails and I was looking at the water and there was something white just out there. We're pulling it in with a stick and it's a coat and we pulled it up and it was my mom in this coat and she was gone and we pulled her out of the pond and she was wearing a white coat and I was crying like I was crying like I'd found her you know and and I'm still sitting there on the couch and the phone rings and and I'm kind of shook up and he asked if I'd seen my mom you know hi Carolyn this is detective so-and-so I can't remember his name and I just trying to you know wanted to touch base and see if you've you know if you've seen or heard from your mom and I said no and they said okay well we just want to see if you've heard from her yet tell us when you you know give us a call if you hear anything um and that was it and um a couple weeks after that I started having I had two dreams where in my dream the phone rings and I answer it and my mom says, I'm so sorry, sweetie. I'm so sorry. I love you so much. And I, I got to go. I can't stay, but I, I love you. I want you to know I love you. And I'm so sorry. And I was like, mom, mom, you know, don't, don't go, don't go. And she'd say, I'm sorry. I got to go. I can't stay. I got to go. And she'd say, I love you. And she'd hang up and, and I, I woke up like she hung up and I woke up and I laid there like startled and thinking that that was, that wasn't a dream. Like, did she really talk to me? Like I, I felt like I heard her. I felt like I just talked to her and, um, I laid there for a couple minutes or a couple seconds and the phone rang and I grabbed it thinking my mom, you know, I I grabbed it thinking who calls at three o'clock in the morning, you know, um, and I picked it up and it was just, do you remember the old disconnect signal at the end of the old landline phones? I picked it up and it was that old disconnect sound. And I, you know, my mom raised me to believe in, that there's more to the world than the eye can see, you know, and that that she would always be connected to me, you know. I I thought it was her, you know, and a couple of weeks later, the same thing happened. I had a dream that she called and she was sorry and I was begging her not to go and she hangs up and I wake up thinking, gosh, another one, you know. It was nice to hear her voice, you know, it was so nice to hear her voice and the phone rang and I answered it and it was the busy signal or the disconnect signal and I couldn't sleep um, when I was getting ready for work that morning. I was kind of talking to her and just telling her, why, why did you, you know, why did you have to go and wh- where are you and I still need you and 
I still need you. And I was driving to work and I could hear her in that phone call saying, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. And when I was driving to work, I told her, I know you're sorry, mom, and I forgive you. But I just told her I forgave her and I, I could have been nicer. I'm sorry that I didn't take better care of you when you broke your leg. And I'm sorry that I didn't tell you that I love you more. And I'm sorry that I was a bratty kid. And that I forgive her, you know. And she never called back. When I was really little, and I don't remember who it was. It was either Elvis or John Lennon. One of those guys that died and was on the radio. And we were in the McDonald's drive-thru. And it was an old green, like 70-something Monte Carlo and I had melted some, I'd left some crayons in the back window and they melted in the sun and the car smelled like hot crayons, but I got in trouble because those crayons melted all over the back. And we're sitting in this drive-thru and, and there's a funeral or something on the radio and they're talking about what a great guy he was and people are crying and I don't know who it is, but I asked my mom what's happening and she said that they're having a funeral. And I, I said, what's that? And she said, well, when, when people die, everybody who loves them, you know, everybody comes together and they say goodbye. And I said, I don't want you to die. And she said, oh, sweetie, everybody dies. Our bodies are just a shell. They're not meant to live forever. And I said, well, when you die, I'm going to have a big funeral. I want everybody to come say they love you. And she said, Oh, see, you know, like, that's not what I want. And I said, what? And she said, well, I think I'd like to just go out into the woods and die peacefully and let the beetles and the bugs and the coyotes eat my body. And I was, no, no. And she said, well, that's the cycle of life. How do you think they live? You know, it's the cycle of life. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and that'll help them get through the winter and help them feed their babies. And no, you know, I was just like, no, you know, and she said, well, fine, you know, you can cremate me then and take me up to the mountains. And I could handle that a little bit better than the beetles and the bugs and the coyotes. And I told her, I don't want you to die. And she said, well, everybody dies. Your body's just a shell and it's not meant to live forever. But the part of us that loves, the part of us that lives in our body, that lives forever. And I'll always love you and I'll always be with you. And I didn't want her to go. But she, I said, I don't want you to die. Mama. I don't I don't want you to ever die. And she goes, I don't, I know. But we do, you know, we, it's part of life. And see each other again, you know, when, when your body dies and, and your shell dies, then your spirit will see me, and it's just the way it's the way it is. We just get to come here for a little while, and and I was upset, and she said, "Well, close your eyes," and I closed my eyes, and she said, "Am I still here?" And I said, "Yeah," 
And she said, how do you know? And I said, because I can hear you. And she said, okay, do it again. Be quiet. You know, we'll be quiet. And I said, okay. And we sat there. I sat there with my eyes closed. And she, after a, a little bit, she said, okay, open your eyes. And I said, okay. She said, was I still here? And I said, yeah. And she said, could you see me? And I said, no. And she said, could you hear me? I said, no. She said, how do you know? And I said, I can feel you. And she said, okay. So when our bodies die, that part of me that loves you, that part of me that you can feel, it will still be there. When we, I realized that something was wrong, like started putting the things together, you know, and hearing rumors, you know, that she had been dumped in a hole in the woods or, you know, that they took her out in the woods and killed her. I found a little comfort in that um, my mom was okay with the beetles and the bugs. You know, there's nowhere that she would rather be than in those mountains and and helping the coyotes feed their babies for one more winter, you know. I don't know if she was she would have been okay with that and when um I don't know, like now I've kind of some things have kind of come to light about, you know, their main person of interest and he's always been a main person of interest, but I guess my faith in justice is gone and what if they do find her now? They wouldn't find Oliver. It's been it's been so long, you know, that I don't think they would find all of her unless they took the time and the care to, you know, bury her properly. And I don't think they did. But if they just found a part, you know, a, a part of her arm or a part of her leg or a part of her, would they even be able to extract enough DNA anymore to identify that that's her? And I don't have faith in that. And so what if they find a couple parts of her? They're not going to get any closer to, to finding the person who did it. And so she'll sit in an evidence locker somewhere, just a couple of her parts, because they won't find all of them. And then I'd have to live with that. And I know she'd rather be on the mountain. There's nowhere else she'd rather be than out there. And do I still want to find her? You know, or do I want to let her, do I want to let her be? I guess I just don't have faith in, you know, they could, they could put her parts in an evidence locker somewhere and, and what they sit there for the rest of eternity while people twiddle their thumbs and wait for, wait for evidence and leads to land on their table. Like what happened to going and getting leads? What happened to getting evidence? Like I just, some of the, some of the ways that the ball was dropped in her case, just maybe I'm missing something. I mean, maybe they didn't drop the ball, but it really looks like, you know, from, from things that I've read in her police reports and other things they did. And I don't have any faith that they would be able to get any further if they have her bones in a box or not. And, and my mom would say, the police, you know, she'd say, them forget about them leave me alone you know but I guess that's kind of a a turning point um a place that I've been at lately 
kind of accepting that and finding a way to be okay with it. Carolyn doesn't have the answers that she wishes she did. According to an interview Carolyn did with the Rapid City Journal in 2018, she doesn't believe that Leona planned to leave home for any length of time. A 2008 Observer article added a little more detail to that last day Leona Kinsey was seen. Quote, Kinsey's boyfriend, a man identified only as Lonnie, said he last saw her about 4.30 p.m. Monday, October 25th. Other friends reported seeing her at the Walmart around the same time. The Observer further notes that no evidence was found in Leona's vehicle that indicated what happened to her. But we don't know how thorough that search was back in 1999. But in 2009, detectives told reporters that the case remained open and that, quote, many subjects had been interviewed. According to her interview with The Observer, Carolyn described her mother as, quote, likely a victim of foul play at the hands of a man she was supposed to meet who reportedly was a drug dealer. When Marissa Jones, host of The Vanished, covered Leona's case in March of 2021, she was able to provide more information. According to Marissa's research, it seems Leona had plans to meet a local man at a grocery store that night. She told a friend as much when she'd seen her earlier at Walmart. Though Leona had plans to visit that same friend later in the evening, after the meeting, she never arrived. Based on Marissa's findings, that three-hour time frame between Leona's visit to Walmart and the time she'd planned to stop by her friend's home would be the window in which she disappeared. If you have any information in the disappearance of Leona LeClaire Kinsey, please call the LeGrand Police Department at 541-963-1017. Next time on The Fall Line, we bring you the final chapter in our three-part series on the life of Carolyn DeFord. The years following her mother's disappearance, her own advocacy work for the missing and murdered, and how it has shaped the life that she lives today. For an in-depth look at Leona Kinsey's case, including never-before-released information, please listen to Marissa's two-part series on Leona. We've linked directly to The Vanished podcast in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins billboard, begin a therapy fund for families who've been on the show, and many other projects. You can read a public post about those goals on our Patreon page. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos for $5 a month. We've also added live streams, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kim Fritz, and Audrey Faulkner. Family and law enforcement interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. 
please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the services of private investigators. You can find a link in the show notes. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.